Good morning, everybody. <coughs> Welcome to you. If you are new here, my name is Matthew. I lead the team which leads uh, our church here and our other congregation up at Alder Road. Just been up there speaking there and come down here. If you are new, <coughs> there are these welcome booklets for you, which tell you a little bit more about who we are, what we believe, what we're about, and uh, we'd love you also, <coughs> if you felt able, to fill in one of these connect cards so that we can give you a proper greeting and send you an email or give you a call in the week and just say hi and perhaps answer any questions you might have about us. Right, I want to talk this morning about friendship, fallout, and fruit. Friendship, fallout, and fruit. I wonder if you've ever been let down by someone. Uh, if that happens, if you're let down by somebody you're relying on, that can be a devastating experience. It's, uh, it can be devastating if you're seven years old and your best friend suddenly in the school playground is no longer your best friend and goes off with another best friend. That can be a devastating moment. And if you're 50 years old and you've been married to somebody for 25 years and suddenly they walk out on you, that's a devastating moment. And there are all kinds of experiences like that and in between that, which probably all of us to some degree have experienced over the course of our lives. And when that happens, when we feel let down, when a friendship is broken, when rather than love there's conflict that comes, what we often tend to do as human beings is we get very defensive, that we argue our own case, we fortify our own position, we tend to dwell on our pain, we list all the reasons why we are right and why the other person is wrong, and we tend to get into a hardened bunker of pain and sorrow. And that's an issue for us in our personal lives. It's also an issue for us in the life of the church, because church life is meant to be, the images the Bible uses, it's about family, it's about body, it's about partnership, it's about friendship, it's about team. And that can be wonderful when you feel good relationships with people, when you feel a sense of real team with people, of common purpose and getting stuff done, that feels great. But it also can be painful because in church life as well, things can come which cause relationships to get frayed, to friendships to come under pressure, for attacks upon our unity, and so there is this potential for pain. Whenever we commit to relationships, we're always exposing ourselves to the potential for pain. And that's true in our personal lives, and it's true in our life together as a church. And the story we're going to look at today describes something of this. And actually, the whole story of the Bible really tells us a lot about this, because the Bible both describes team and demands team in terms of how we do life as a community together, as the people of God. We see that right the way through the story. We see it actually in the, in the person and nature of God himself. We worship God who is one. There is one God, but God is three persons, the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see even in God himself, there's this kind of dynamic of relationship of team, that God operates as one team in a relationship of mutual dynamic love and the purpose of God's mission, which he has. And you see that then worked out in the world that God has made. The story begins with the creation of all things, and then we get the story of the creation of man, and Adam is made, and God sees Adam, and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he makes Eve, and there's a, a team that is formed as Adam and Eve together are given the, 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 the divine command to care for and work and steward the world that God has made. And then we see in, uh, 
in, in the story of Abraham, God calling this one man to carry his promises through the earth, that God promises Abraham to have multiple descendants, and out of Abraham come the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 tribes of Israel are called to team together in carrying forward the promises of God. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus always worked in team. There were the 120, this crowd of 120 who gathered around him, followed him. And out of those 120, there were the 12 who were his uh, close team. And then even in the 12, there was another kind of sub-team, the three Peter and James and John, whom Jesus spent a particular amount of time with and focused on particularly. And so Jesus always himself worked in team. And then when we get to the account of the apostles, when we look at the life of the apostle Paul, spending a lot of time thinking about his life and ministry as we work through Acts, the apostle Paul never does stuff on his own. He's always with friends. He's always working in team. And, and the old kind of trite saying is true that teamwork makes the dream work that it's the team that makes the stuff happen. It's not just individuals. Thank you, Donna. Teamwork makes the dream work. But the reality is that team, friendship, relationship, partnership also creates the place, the space for interpersonal tensions. And you see that right from the beginning of the story as well, that Adam and Eve, rather than just a beautiful relationship, a teaming together, doing the things that God has called them to, sin comes in and they immediately begin to accuse one another and do one another down as a rupture in their relationship. You see it in the story of the 12 tribes of Israel, that rather than carrying out God's mandate for a blessing to the nations, civil war erupts and the tribes go to war against each other and the kingdom splits. You see it in the account of the disciples who followed Jesus, that those 12 men were often, sometimes seen more often, engaged in kind of interpersonal conflicts, squabbles about who's going to be top dog, who's most important, who's got the best seat at the table, all that stuff. And so there's this space for fighting, for relational breakdown, which happens whenever we get in team, whenever we get in partnership, whenever we get in friendship, whenever we get in relationship. And in today's story, we see the good and the bad about team. We see friendship and fallout but also, praise God, fruit. Acts 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, the background, the scene here is that Paul and Barnabas had previously traveled out from Antioch in a great big uh, clockwise loop, uh, in the eastern end of the Mediterranean. It's a story that's told in Acts 13 and Acts 14, and it's an incredible story about them getting knocked down and then getting back up again. Sometimes, literally, Paul is stoned in the town of Lystra. They think, think he's dead, but they pray for him, and up he gets, and off he goes again. And uh, it's a, a, a story of incredible opposition, but also incredible breakthrough, as in city after city, churches are established. They then return to Antioch, and uh, they spend a lengthy period there helping build that church, which is a remarkable church in a big city, the third city of empire, the third most significant city in the Roman Empire, and an incredible church is being birthed and growing in that city. They then 
have a special mission. They go down to Jerusalem. There's an argument that happens about how Gentile, non-Jewish believers are meant to act in the church, the kind of customs and uh, practices they should adhere to. And Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the church in Antioch to go down to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and elders there and work out how they're meant to respond to that. They then come back to Antioch, and then they decide, or Paul decides, let's go and see these churches which we started before. Let's go and see how they're doing. And that's the pastoral and apostolic impulse. Let's see how they're doing. We, we started these churches, but we want to go and check out how the believers are. Are they still being faithful to the Word of God? Are they still growing? Are they being strong in the faith? Church ministry, the mission is meant to be about planting and strengthening churches. Paul and Barnabas have planted all these churches. They now want to go back and strengthen the churches. And Paul and Barnabas believe in team. They're going to go together. That's a team of two, but they always take another gang along. They want to do team ministry, team mission. And so the conversation begins, who are we going to take with us? And it seems like a simple question. Who are we going to take? But it leads to a major bust-up between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas have been the closest of companions but they end up going literally in opposite directions. It says that Barnabas heads off to Cyprus, while Paul went off to Syria and Cilicia. They literally go in opposite directions because of the intensity of their argument about who they should take with them on this trip to visit the churches. Now, that's extraordinary when you think about all that Paul and Barnabas had been through together. Barnabas was the one who believed in Paul when no one else did, when Paul first came to faith and none of the other believers trusted him, Barnabas is the one who got hold of Paul and brought him to the believers and said, we need to believe in this man. God's hand is on him. Barnabas was then the one who sometime later, when Barnabas was called to go and help with this great move of God in Antioch, uh, Barnabas got to Antioch, saw what was happening, knew it was too big for him to handle, and he went off to another town, to Tarsus, to find Paul, to get Paul to come and help him, because he, he wanted Paul with him in ministry in Antioch. Barnabas and Paul were the ones who the church in Antioch entrusted with their most important missions. When they collected up a big offering for the church in Jerusalem, it was Paul and Barnabas who were entrusted with the cash to take it down to Jerusalem for the disciples there. It's Paul and Barnabas who were sent out by the church on this incredible church-planting mission through the eastern Mediterranean region. When there's this big theological dispute about how Jews and Gentiles are to relate to one another in the church, it's Paul and Barnabas who go to Jerusalem to talk to the Jerusalem leaders about how to resolve it. There's all this history, years and years of partnering together in the mission. There's this incredibly deep friendship that Paul and Barnabas have, and then they go in opposite directions. It seems almost unbelievable that after all that history, all that friendship, all they've been through, all the knocks they've taken and the breakthroughs they've experienced, they had this huge bust up about a guy called Mark. Now, if nothing else, what this tells us is that we can't take friendship for granted. You just don't know what might happen. You don't know when something's just going to come in side left and smack you around the head. You just don't know what's going to happen. You can't take friendship for granted. 
But when something like this happens, what we tend to do is we want to work out who's to blame. Who's at fault here? Who's wrong? Is it Paul? Is it Barnabas? That's what we tend to do. We look, who's, who's causing the trouble? And uh, that's how we operate. It happens when you're seven years old and there's a bust up in the playground. Well, she said this and she did that. Happens as adults. At the moment, I'm involved in a church situation where there's been a kind of relationship break in, in the church. And uh, what we're doing, really, we're kind of examining it and looking at it and trying to work out what went wrong. Why did this relationship tension begin? Who, who's got stuff wrong? Who's got stuff right? How can we then help to put things back together again? That's what we do. But what's interesting about this story is that Luke, who's writing the account, Book of Acts, he doesn't go there at all. He doesn't in any way tell us who was right and who was wrong. He simply describes it. Paul and Barnabas want to go on a mission. Barnabas wants to take Mark. Paul doesn't. They have a big fight. Barnabas goes one way with Mark. Paul goes the other way with Silas. And as I look at this, I think that probably there's a sense in which both Paul and Barnabas were right that Paul was probably right to be suspicious of Mark because what we know of Mark, his track record wasn't particularly impressive. What Paul wants to do is to go back to visit the churches which they had previously started. And on that previous journey, Paul and Barnabas had taken Mark with them. And on that occasion, when the temperature got a bit hot, Mark had ducked out. He'd given up, he'd gone back to Antioch where things felt a bit safer. And Paul is engaged on serious business. This is, this is frontline stuff. It's potentially dangerous. And so there's no space on Paul's team for someone who's unreliable. If you're not 100% reliable, if you're not 100% trustworthy, there's no space for you on Paul's team because he's about a big mission which is going to be costly. And it seems that in Mark, there was probably quite a strong streak of self-preservation. We know from the book of Acts that he deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first mission trip because he, stuff got too hot. There's another account which tells us something about Mark. We, we think that Mark wrote the gospel that's called Mark. And in Mark 14 is recorded the uh, night when Jesus was betrayed and how in the Garden of Gethsemane as soldiers came to arrest Jesus, there was a young man wearing a, a garment which was grabbed hold of by the soldiers and he ran away, he fled naked. And we think that was Mark himself. And so we get this picture from that occasion in the Garden of Gethsemane where Mark is a scared young man who literally runs for his life, literally runs away naked rather than stand with Jesus and face the consequences of that. And then a number of years later, he's with Paul and Barnabas on this mission trip. Things get a bit dangerous, things get a bit hot. And again, Mark runs away and goes back to Antioch. Now, I don't think we can blame him for that. I think myself, in the garden, nobody else stood with Jesus. Why would I ever think that I would have done? I'm sure I'd have turned tail and run as well. And you can understand on the, that first mission trip that Paul and Barnabas did, it was, I mean, it was heavy stuff. People are getting stoned. Not surprised that Mark ran away. But Paul is a get-knocked-down, get-back-up-again kind of a guy. And Paul is looking for equally robust companions. He's going into battle. He, he wants to know that when the whistle blows and he gets out of the trench and runs into enemy fire, that the guys who are with him are going to be with him and not still hiding in the trench. And he's worried that Mark's going to hide in the trench and says, Barnabas, we shouldn't take him. I think he was right. 
But perhaps Barnabas was right as well. Because what do we know about Barnabas? Well, we know that Barnabas was Mr. Positivity. Barnabas was Mr. Encouragement. Barnabas was the one who always believed in people. He believed in Paul when nobody else did. If it wasn't for Barnabas, we wouldn't have Paul. And so he believes in people. He wants the best for people. He expects the best of people. And also there's the family connection because we're told in Colossians that Barnabas and Mark were cousins. And so Mark wants to believe in his cousin. Yes, Mark has let us down before, but I think he's learned his lesson and we need to give him a chance to redeem himself. I believe that this time he will stick with us. And so Barnabas wants to extend that grace and that belief towards Mark. And I think that's commendable. And so I think probably both Paul was right and Barnabas was right. And we could also say maybe they were both wrong. Maybe Paul was just too rigid in what he was looking for in his team members. And maybe Barnabas was a bit too naive in who he would take along with him on the journey. But the sorrow of the tale is that these two men who have been such close friends, Paul and Barnabas, they've been through so much together. They part company and go in opposite directions. Now part of the good news of this story is that it looks like later on Paul and Mark later patched things up. In uh, his second letter to Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Very much looks like that Barnabas has proved right, that Mark actually came good and that later on in his ministry, Paul particularly wants Mark with him because he's proved to be a faithful companion and friend. That's good. That happens much later on. What we don't get is really any indication that Paul and Barnabas ever made it up. They might have done, we're just not told. And what we can see about this is that sometimes good and godly people disagree and relationships break up. And Paul and Barnabas, with Silas and with Mark, heads in opposite directions. Now what can we learn from this? What can we apply from this to ourselves? Well, one obvious thing is that we need to work hard at maintaining relationship. That's true in our personal relationships. You've got to fight for friendship. You've got to fight for relationship. You've got to fight for marriage. You've got to fight for partnership because there are all kinds of things which come in which will break that apart. They just are. And in church life, we have to fight for our relationships. We have to fight for unity because there are all kinds of things which come from all kinds of directions which will seek to bust up the unity that we have. Those can be theological disputes where we start to argue about things and pull apart. It can be, often is, it's just personality issues that we just start to get a bit fed up with one another for various reasons. Sometimes it can be more philosophical stuff. I want to do it this way, now I want to do it that way. And those can be quite small things, but they can become things which become a break, a tear upon unity. We need to be on our guard. Churches have fractured and split over what are the most trivial of things, but which become big things as people take a hardened position and fight one another rather than treating each other with humility and grace. We need to work hard at maintaining a relationship because the devil does seek to sow division. We've got an enemy who wants to bust things up. We've got a spiritual enemy who doesn't like people being in reliable friendships. 
We've got an enemy who doesn't like people having faithful marriages. We've got an enemy who doesn't like churches staying united in the mission that they're called to. And so the, we've got an enemy who will seek to sow division amongst us. But something we can see from this story is that God can use even that. Because in the grace of God, the separation between Paul and Barnabas actually leads to a multiplication of ministry. That rather than going together, they part ways. And that means that the ministry is multiplied. Now you've got Paul and his team laboring in the gospel. And you've got Barnabas and his team laboring in the gospel. Now you've got two amazing apostolic teams laboring in the gospel. It means that ministry has been multiplied. The mechanism by which that happens doesn't look good. But God uses it for good because God is sovereign. Something else we need to see is that often when we have relationship breakdowns, it's not a question of who is right. Very often it's not that simple. And so if we are going through times of relational tension, breakdown with people, actually what we need personally is humility, to act with humility towards one another. Because it's, not, it's hardly ever as simple as they are right and I They're wrong and I am right. That's just not normally how it happens. And so we need to approach these things with real humility, and that's really hard. It's hard when you're a seven-year-old in the playground, and it's hard when you're an adult as well. But by the grace of God, we need to do it. And then we need to think deliberately and intentionally about our relationships and think, are there things relationally that I, we, you need to fix? Are there things in relationships that we need to repent of where we have caused other people harm or hurt? Are there things which we need to work on in order to make things better rather than waiting for the other person to step towards us? Are there people that we need to step towards? That's true on the individual level. It's also true at the national level. Think of all the huge focus this weekend upon the end of the First World War 100 years ago. Of course, the debate is whether that war even needs to happen. If different nations had treated one another differently, if there had been less grandstanding, if there had been more humility, if there had been less national pride and more national honesty, perhaps the millions who died in the First World War never would have had to in that way. It's true at the national level as well as personally. Now, we don't in the book of Acts, hear anything more about Barnabas. He's been such an important character in the story, and then he just disappears. He goes off to Cyprus with Mark, and we hear nothing more about him in the book of Acts. But we start to hear a lot about a young man called Timothy. This is a story about friendship and fallout, but it's also a story about fruit. And when Timothy appears on the scene, we see how he and Paul are called into fruitful partnership together. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. Now, Acts 16 verse 1 is the first reference to Timothy, but he becomes Paul's chief companion. And they meet in a town called Lystra, which is the town where a few years previously, 
Paul had been stoned to the point of death. And from this point on, Timothy becomes Paul's chief buddy. Many of the letters that Paul writes, he signs as being written from him and from Timothy. And there are two letters in our Bible which are written to Timothy himself from Paul. As Timothy leads a church in the challenging but amazing city of Ephesus. And so Timothy becomes one of the most prominent characters in the whole of the New Testament. But where we meet him is here in Lystra, and how we're introduced to him is that Paul meets him, wants to take him with him, and circumcises him. Now, that's not something that's ever happened in any of the teams that I have been part of. I have never joined a ministry team where a condition of joining has been circumcision. And I've never led a team in which that has happened. Uh, on Thursday this week, I'm meeting with the other guys who, with me, uh, comprise the advanced leadership team in the UK, the advanced group of churches that we particularly work with. And one of the things I want to say to them is I think it's time to add some more people to our team. If we do that, we won't make circumcision a condition of them joining us. So what is going on here? And you probably, if you've been here the last few weeks, if you ever read your Bible, you will not have been able to escape noticing how often the C word appears in the Bible, how often circumcision appears in the Bible. And so we need to give a little bit of explanation to it because it is so central to the story and, to be honest, just so weird for us. What on earth is going on? Now, the Bible's story is that circumcision was given to Abraham. And we might say this is a strange thing to be given to anybody, but Genesis chapter 17 tells us what was going on, the dialogue between Abraham and God in which circumcision was given. It says this, When Abraham, when Abraham as he then was, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham, exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations." I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, circumcision might seem a bit strange to us, but it was a permanent sign of a permanent promise. God made these permanent promises to Abraham, and circumcision was to be the permanent sign of their validity. And so circumcision becomes the kind of the chief identifying mark, the chief identifying badge of Abraham's descendants. Now, 
there's an issue when this comes to Timothy because Timothy is ethnically Jewish. His mother is Jewish. And if you're born to a Jewish mother, you are counted as Jewish. We know from later on in the Bible that she's a woman called Eunice who is also a believer in Jesus. So Timothy's mum is Jewish, but his father, his dad, is Greek. And so in the way that relationship works, he's Jewish by birth, but his dad had never got him circumcised because his dad's a Greek, not a Jew. And this means that other Jews would have regarded Timothy as an apostate Jew, as not a proper Jew, as a kind of a rebel, as a fallen away Jew. It's really hard to think of, because it's such a strong sense of identity, there's nothing really comparable for us. I mean, a, a crass example, but the kind of the best one I could come up with is a bit like if you were born to a, a family of Cherry supporters, your dad and his dad before you, and all your family had always been Cherry supporters, and you'd lived all your life in Bournemouth, and you'd always gone to watch Cherry's games, but you did that always wearing a Southampton shirt. Every other Cherries fan would say, well, you're not really Bournemouth, are you? You're not really Cherries because you're not wearing the right shirt. Or you're wearing a Saint shirt when you should be wearing a Cherries shirt. Now, getting Tim circumcised makes him a proper Jew. It's like he takes off the Saint's shirt puts, puts on the, the, the Cherries shirt. It makes him a proper Jew. Now, that's fair enough. But if you have been following the story by now, what you should all be screaming is, what on earth was Paul playing at? Because the story before this, the story of Acts 15, is that Barnabas and Paul go down to Jerusalem to talk to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem specifically about circumcision. Because there have been some troublemakers who've come to the church in Antioch and have said to the believers in Antioch, who are Greeks, if you're going to be proper Christians, you need to be proper Jews, which means you need to get circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas have been sent by the church in Antioch to Jerusalem to work out that no... They didn't need to be circumcised. That was the whole point. You, you get right with God by Jesus and Jesus only, not by Jesus and, a, and circumcision, not by Jesus and a cherry shirt, not by Jesus and wearing a poppy, not by Jesus and anything. You get right with Jesus, get right with God by Jesus only. And Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that he refused to circumcise another of his friends, Titus, who they all wanted circumcised. And he said, no, I'm not going to circumcise him. But he circumcises Timothy. What on earth is going on? Is Paul being inconsistent? I think the answer is yes. But if he had been consistent, actually that would have been foolish and would have missed what the gospel demands. Because for Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always front and center. And that means that Paul is willing to do things which will cause others to accuse him of inconsistency. We can often think that kind of being accused of inconsistency is one of the worst things you can be accused of. But if you're going to keep faithful to the gospel, there will be times when you're accused of inconsistency. This is how Paul describes it in his first letter to the Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one... <coughs> became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some." 
I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now, if you see that about Paul, that he's proud of his inconsistency. I'm going to live this way with these people. I'm going to live differently with these people because I want all of them to come to know Jesus. When you see that's what Paul is about, you can understand why he circumcised Tim. It's because Paul wants to reach those who are not Jews, and he wants to reach the Jews. And all the Jews know that Tim is meant to be a Jew, but he's not really a Jew. He's a Bournemouth supporter in a Southampton shirt, and that needs to get sorted out because he's never going to be accepted by the other Jews until this is resolved. And so Paul gets it resolved, and he circumcises Tim. And circumcising Tim in this way is not a threat to the gospel. It's not that Paul is suddenly saying, you must be circumcised, you must become a Jew in order to become a Christian. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's circumcising the Jewish Timothy in order to remove hindrances to the gospel for other Jews. Because Tim is ethnically Jewish, and so to reach other Jews, his Jewishness needs to be reinforced. But circumcision itself is... It's neither here nor there. If you're Jewish, get circumcised. That's your cultural identity. If you're not Jewish, don't. It has no spiritual value or worth. That's what Paul says in Galatians. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Whether Timothy was circumcised or not made absolutely no difference in his relationship with God. But it did make a difference in terms of how effective he could be on the mission of God. And so Tim makes a small sacrifice for a greater service. And I wonder in this as well whether, as this happens, whether Paul is thinking... Yeah, Tim is made of sterner stuff than Mark. Mark, the one who runs away when things get a little bit hot. Here's Tim, as an adult man, willingly going through the process of circumcision in order order that he might accompany Paul and preach the gospel. We sometimes think, because of other things said about Timothy in the Bible, we sometimes kind of caricature him as timid Tim. I think you read this story where we meet Timothy. There's nothing timid about Timothy at all. He's got some guts. Now, what's the application for us in this? The obvious one is that we need to be prepared to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Paul and Timothy were far less concerned with their own rights and their own comforts than they were with how to reach other people. They were prepared to make real sacrifices. Paul was willing to get stoned. Timothy was ready to be circumcised if that meant they could reach some more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, the focus is all upon remembering the sacrifice of millions of people. Well, we who are disciples of Christ are called to a life of sacrifice as well. We need to be willing to give up our preferences, our comforts, our rights, if that means that we can advance the cause of Jesus Christ. If it means that we can remove hindrances to preaching the gospel and making him known. Another application for us is to see that sometimes if we're going to be faithful to the gospel, that will mean that we look inconsistent. There'll be times when we do things in one context which we refuse to do in another context because 
we want to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're with some people, we behave in some ways. With other people, we do things differently because we're seeking to reach people with the good news of Jesus, just as Paul did. Another thing we can see is that strengthening of churches has got to be a priority for us. It says in Acts 15.41 that Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then Acts 16 verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. You know, we, we're about planting and strengthening churches. We, uh, we want to plant lots of churches. It's great now that our church meets in two congregations, that like we've planted this new church here. It's great that Ian and Lindsay left us a few months ago to plant a new church in Glasgow. It's great there's other church plants that we're involved in, both in the UK and around the world. We want to plant many more churches, but we also want to see churches strengthened. We want to see churches grow, become robust, healthy, strong. We've got to be committed to that. We need to believe that for us here at Gateway, that we might be strengthened. There's also an application here for those of you here this morning who don't yet know Jesus, the reality is that we'd do pretty much anything to have you join us. Circumcision might be a step quite far. <laughs> but we'd do pretty much anything to have you join us. Because the gospel is the most important thing. You need to know Jesus. There's no other way that you're going to get right with God. It's not about how well you live. It's not about how good you are. It's not about the place you were born and the way you've been raised and the way you conduct your life, none of that stuff. The only way to get right with God is through Jesus Christ. And we'd do pretty much anything to have you join us in that because we believe that's the best way to live, not just for now but for all time, that Jesus is our anchor. He's the ground on which we stand. He's our hope on which we base our lives. He's the one who holds us firm. He's the one through whom the promises given to Abraham are now realized in us, that God has given to us all things, that we Christians are going to inherit the whole earth, the whole universe, because it all belongs to Jesus anyway. And we'd love to have you join us in that. Jesus only. And I think we do need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves. See how this story ends. Paul and Silas and Timothy... Go off strengthening the churches. And it says, The churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. That's something we should pray for ourselves. Lord, would you strengthen us? We need to be stronger as a church. We need to muscle up. And part of that actually is that we grow in numbers. It says they grew daily in numbers. Would we dare even to pray for that? That, Lord, you'd add daily to our number. That we might be strengthened that we might be a church which carries more and more of the realized promises of God. The promises of God made flesh amongst us as we respond to him and as others do as well. That word that Dick brought, the builders outnumber the destroyers. Yes, they do. In Christ Jesus, the builders outnumber the destroyers. And so we need to pray that we'd be strengthened and that daily the Lord would add to our number. Amen. Why don't we do that? Let's stand and I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll respond in worship. Yes, King Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray for us here in Gateway Church, here at 502 and up at Alder Road. I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray we'd be strong in the faith. I pray that we'd be strong in our relationships. Lord, things come from all kinds of directions which would 
disrupt our unity and uh, cause tensions to come. And I pray that you would help us by your grace to fight the fight for unity, to fight for team, to fight for relationship. I pray that when we do feel let down, when friendships come under pressure, when stuff happens, which maybe it shouldn't, I pray that we wouldn't look just to cast blame and lay it at the doors of others, but I pray that we would act with humility ourselves, that we'd be those who step onto the front foot to fix things rather than to just kind of harden where they're broken. Help us in this. I pray strengthen us in this, Lord. And I pray that you would add to our number, and we would dare to pray. I dare to pray, Lord, that you would begin to add to our number daily, that you'd strengthen us with more people, more people who come into the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel which is worth sacrificing all kinds of things for in order to obtain the treasure and prize, which is Christ Jesus. So would you add to us, Lord, strengthen us and build us, I pray. Amen.